0: Bodies in the
1: sand tropical drinks melting in your hand in the pocket we'll of fucking capital the leadership the is the completely alienated end. from the base and vice versa and this is a way to like you know get the rank and file to feel like they're doing something about decades of stagnant wages and declining benefits the two-tier structure whatever and then you you said like on the show you're like did why the fuck are we even here for uh-huh. an emergency podcast? About- well,
0: maybe I'm four years wiser now. Perhaps because you are. I look at this, um, it, including all the other strikes that are we've been talking about over the last few months. Uh, as yeah, I mean these are workers trying to get a better deal, trying to get what they want, which is not a communist society within our lifetime. Yeah. Maybe some of them individually want it, but that's not what these strikes are about. Mm. But I, I think we've seen over the course of the last five years, maybe an increasing support of labor mm-hmm. um, across the political spectrum. I think hot labor summer might have something to do with that. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of factors for that, but we're in the 20th month of strike tober at least. I think it's generally a very positive thing that people are recognizing that workers deserve all they want, mm-hmm. and if what they want sounds high to some pundit on on the news media, they look like an asshole, and they nobody's should. really nobody really seriously takes the side of the owners of the auto companies, the yeah. owners of the studios, yeah, the even, owners of UPS,
1: yeah. Even when they do, it has to be in some like backhanded way. Like a lot of the rhetoric and. I don't want this episode to be about like media criticism or like takes on the media because other people do that way better than us. Like, we'll talk seriously about like the history of the auto industry, the history of the UAW, like what the stakes are in this. But we will
0: critique some media. The world socialist website.
1: Yes, we will. And uh, what's that the Socialist Equality Party? Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll save that for the bonus. Mm-hmm, the, uh, maybe the Trot Trot spotting. That I Andy's can't wait really, to get really into it. At. But I we'll know. we'll talk about the actual yeah. strike first. We want to see. We want to hear what the Trotskyists, the different lines they have on this. But we'll get there. We'll get there <laughs> together. You know we will. We always do mm-hmm. in the end. Um, but yeah, like media stuff aside, like the way that the right-wing in this country, uh, the various different shades of it, talk about it is like, it, it's a bad look to, to stand for capital, even for them at this point in time. So the way that they critique it is saying that all this shit is unnecessary because um, these workers are there because they're um, patrons and clients of the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden, uh, Union Joe, Middle Class Joe, uh, is using the crisis that we've all been through for the last three or four years in order to push through his Green New Deal, you know, the uh, green energy transition. J.D. Vance just uh, earlier today pointed out that there's $5 billion in subsidies going to Ford in order to transition from um, internal combustion engines to battery powered cars and the workers their demands would equal about 5 billion dollars over the course of the contract so why not just continue to make gas cars and just give the workers a raise so like that's the way that the republicans by and large are trying to deal with this it's like a critique of the more general sort of energy policy and industrial policy of the democrats uh-huh. with the green transition
0: yeah but the i mean the evs aren't just like the democrats fetish it's like a
1: you know, they're making them all over the world for a reason. A hundred percent. There's demand for them. <laughs> yeah. That, which is why it's a, it's a piece of demagoguery when right. they do it. And it's like, and it's uh, it's very cynical, right? Because um, what you're seeing is in, especially in China, but now that uh, European countries have responded to the um, inflation reduction act and all of the, ver- the chips act and all the subsidies going to manufacturing in the United States, green energy and whatever, green capital, uh, they're getting a piece of it too. And everybody knows that China is like five to 10 years ahead of the game on electric vehicles and nobody from Biden to Macron to Schultz to anybody wants to be left behind. Because as we'll see, the economics of this for capital are huge, Mm -hmm. right? Like everyone's been saying, oh, for for 30 years, people have been talking about like we have to get ourselves off of fossil fuels. You know, we need to stop climate change. We have to find a way, whether it's taxing carbon or whether it's like subsidies or cap and trade or whatever the case may be to do it. Well, it turns out if you wait for 25, 30 years, way too long, uh, but you allow the free market, which is to say you allow capital to make like profits off of it and actually use it to massively downsize its workforce uh, and make incredible profits backed up by the state, That capital can get on board with this, man. Massive subsidies sounds great. Mm -hmm. We backstop stopped the entire industry 15 years ago in the financial crisis, which we'll talk about a lot because a lot of the seeds of this strike and what we're seeing come out of 2008 um, and the bailout of uh, of the big three automakers. Um, And so, you know, we have to be very, I think, critical when we look at this and look beyond the greenwashing of all of this. We all know that a hundred percent transition to electric vehicles on the roads of the United States isn't going to put a dent, of course, in emissions. Which, Maybe are, if it happened right away, it's going to happen pretty fast. I mean, that's the indications that I'm getting from reading the financial press, from like Bloomberg to the Financial Times to even the Wall Street Journal, grudgingly understands that sometime in the next three to seven to ten years or so. Electric vehicle sales are going to outstrip internal combustion engine sales. And, mm-hmm. and California's taking the lead and basically saying that we're going to ban gas powered vehicles by, what was it 2030 mm-hmm. or whatever? So it's coming down the pipe, and capital is going to make huge profits off of the whole mm-hmm. thing. The question right now is who gets a share of those profits? Certainly, the state wants a nice share of those profits. There's all sorts of imperatives for not just Biden, but the larger bourgeois state in the United States and elsewhere. To try to get a handle on this and ensure they're not left behind by China and yeah. Korea and Japan.
0: Um, another element of that is Biden can run on this industrial policy, saying we're going to make microchips here, we're going to make electric vehicles here, and I think that is strong messaging that, like, okay, I'm an old man who doesn't is not able to do anything, yeah. but we're making stuff here, like we're doing the MAGA thing that Trump said he was going to do. That's probably the best thing he could run on. Yeah, but he could. I think it would not hurt him at all. It would probably help him dramatically if he would just say he was in favor of the strike more and point to the gains of the NLRB, point to how his administration has
1: actually helped mm-hmm. workers. It's dangerous though because uh labor is like a junior partner within the Democrat coalition. And in fact, like, and
0: they're they're, the bosses are the senior partner, the senior partner,
1: 100%. Yeah, I mean, all all, everything follows from them, you know, is like The the profit system, of course, is based around their activities and their actions. Uh, and so, of course, when it comes to tax dollars and when it comes for the federal government and state governments and local governments, but also, of course, for donations and support for the two capitalist parties, you know, they're the game in town. So, like, he the Democrats right now quietly as you said because Biden uh, there, there's been all these news reports that he's the most pro-union president in uh, modern memory and he did come out strongly saying that the workers needed to get from the company a record contract this time around he's been standing up as middle class Joe Union Joe for the American working class to the extent that he can but I think it's just the optics of that are kind of rough considering that he can't alienate the ultimate masters of society, and the Democratic Party, and him. There's other constituencies involved here, though, because it's not just capital and it's not just labor, although those are the two main contending parties here, as always. I don't think people are talking enough about the national security inc- implications of all this. Mm. Right? Um, there was a really great article in... Great. <laughs> really interesting article in the Financial Times, which pointed out that the battle of the United Auto Workers alongside the Biden administration is the battle for democracy. And it points to all the wage stagnation that we know about deindustrialization starting in the 1970s, broadly talking about neoliberalism. And it says, these are the grand structural forces that are giving rise to the fascism of the MAGA movement, to the fascism of Orban, to the fascism of Melanie, to the fascism of Putin, and in the that, short
0: term, maybe that's true.
1: And I'm using f- fascism because that's, right. what, that's what they call it, right? Uh, it's like a reactionary um, mm-hmm. movement, right? So, um, And so the auto workers getting a good contract in this instance would be a way to tamp down on the social pressures being brought on by all the dislocations of deindustrialization, stagnant wages, uh, decline in union uh, participation in this country. And it's basically the larger argument is that you need to bring back the middle class. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're going to have MAGA forever.
0: You get, or you have to keep the middle class happy. You so they're not running. they're not developing in, insane phantasmagorias of QAnon and storming the Capitol. Yeah, exactly.
1: Stuff. You need to you need to also convince the working class that they are the middle class mm. and that they have a stake in this entire thing, right? And there's
0: that, a, then there's a path for them to uh, have yeah. a better life if they keep working hard.
1: Exactly right. They're voting merit, for Democrats. The merit, meritocratic dream starts with voting for Biden. Mm-hmm. Starts for voting for Fetterman, Starts at a, at a Bernie rally. So like elements of the ruling class. Understand the stakes here. They understand the, I wouldn't say errors. I don't think they see neoliberalism per se as an error, that basket of policies and social formations. But I think that there's a true understanding now that we're in or need to be moving towards a post-neoliberal world where you have at least a return to some of the stability. And so they see the unions then as an instrument, as a lever. And up until recently with the two Sean's, Um, a very usable, tractable lever that they can use as, as like a very subordinate uh, member of the Democrat coalition, of the ruling class coalition. They could use it as a lever to like turn on and off, um, to um, spur action opportunistically, uh, to help them in certain instances when it was necessary. But now they see that the stakes are high enough that it looks like similar to in the 1930s when whole factions of the ruling class went over and supported the, the new deal, that there are whole elements of capital now who are, especially consumer capital, who are starting to see this struggle as one of an existential struggle, you know, for the world that, the, that they want to have, the profits that they want to have, the, importantly, the political stability necessary in order to have a profit system.
0: Do you want to uh, hear a little
1: audio of how Brandon responded? I'd love to. Yeah. yeah, let's hear it from the man himself, Joe Brand. This
2: is a CBS News special report. Hello, everyone. I'm Major Garrett in Washington. We want to take you to the White House, where President Biden is set to deliver remarks on the historic,
1: simultaneous United Auto Workers strike against all of Detroit's big three automakers.
2: Here is the president now. Auto companies, you know, I've been in touch with both parties over since this began over the last few weeks and over the last the past decade. Sleepy auto Joe. companies have. Uh, seen record to pass profits, out, folks. including the last few years because of the extraordinary skill and sacrifices of the UAW workers. But Those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view, with those workers. Just as the Treasury Department has released a report pointing out that the most comprehensive report ever, dealing with how unions are good for both union workers and non-union workers mm-hmm. to and the overall economy. Unions raise workers' wages, they said, incomes. Increase home ownership, increase retirement savings, increase access to critical benefits like sick leave and child care, and reduce inequality. All of which strengthen our economy for all workers. That's because unions unions raise standards across the workplaces and entire industries, pushing up wages and strengthening benefits for everyone. That's why strong unions are critical to a growing economy and growing it from the middle out, the bottom up, <laughs> not the top down. That's especially true as we transition to a clean energy future, which we're Mm -hmm. in the process of doing.
1: There you go. There you go. Straight from the horse's mouth. Um, Sounded a little bit like a horse, like when you give a horse peanut butter and (laughs) (laughs) like Mr. Ed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The famous Mr. Ed. You know, he brought up some interesting stuff. Of course, he has to talk about the green transition. The green transition is fascinating because I've been saying for years now, and we're back here four years after we did our, our uh, emergency pod about the last strike. And sometimes I feel like I'm um, kind of just like sowing the same seeds and telling the same stories, the same whatever, just over and over and over again over the years. But then I remember that like, there's hopefully, probably, and if you're one of them, salutes uh, to you, um, listeners who were not politically aware, you know, 15 years ago, when that uh, big crisis happened. Um, there are people who you know, maybe I've heard a little bit about this stuff, but need to know more. So 2008 is fascinating because I always said, and I've said for years that that was an opportunity for capital under the auspices of the um, Obama administration to use this crisis opportunity of 2008 in order to actually do something that looks like a green transition at that point in time. You had all three automakers, the big three on their back. The only one that didn't uh, go bankrupt uh, in 2008 was Ford. And the only reason they did was not because they were particularly more profitable than GM or Chrysler, what is now Stellantis was then Chrysler. It was because the geniuses at Ford realized in 2007 that financially and in terms of credit, they were in trouble. So right before the bottom fell out of the credit markets, right before like, you know, Bank of America's stock price went down to one penny, they managed to secure like a $10 billion loan which they were able to use to bridge themselves through this. But the Obama administration and Congress under TARP forced Ford to take the bailout as well. Mm-hmm. They said, all three of you guys are all going to take this. You're all going to be subject to the same terms. Ford protested, but they had to take it because GM and Chrysler were so absolutely insolvent that you were talking about the destruction of, what, uh, two-thirds of a million jobs you know, so across could- the Midwest? Could
0: we visualize this as, after 2008, Ford is Calvin peeing on GM yeah. and Chrysler, <laughs> but then uh, Obama is peeing on all
1: of them? Obama's peeing on all of them, yeah. Right. And Obama's especially peeing on the United Auto Workers Union, because like, it, it shows... So the failure of imagination isn't just to like use the, what was it, $700 billion of TARP stimulus money used to like patch together the financial system to also do what Biden managed to do like a couple of years ago, which was pass like massive subsidies for capital and incentives um, to transition towards green energy, quote unquote. He didn't do that, but he also, and this shows the lack of imagination uh, of the Democrats and also the political stake at the time that for a couple years, the majority owner of Chrysler Corporation, which Obama forced into a marriage with Fiat of France, the majority stakeholder of 55% was the U.S. Treasury Department, for all intents and purposes, nationalized. Uh, the ownership, The majority ownership of General Motors was... The United Auto Workers, Syndicalism <laughs> they, achieved. Syndicalism achieved. Gombersite right-wing syndicalism achieved. Like, literally, the the pension fund, the retirement fund of the UAW, went into the bailout at such a great level that they had a majority stake in the entire thing. And so people think... And, of course, people are uh, disappointed with Obama. Like, that's so much of what the politics over the last 10 years have been, It's been disappointment with Obama or whatever. But, like... Nowhere in the political or social imaginary did a fundamental change in ownership structures, property, relations of production, ever really enter in where we could imagine, you know, the quote unquote social democratic Democrats. People think they're like temporarily embarrassed neoliberals, but have some (laughs) sort of like, you know, fucking socialist core to them, right? Because they're what's the left in this country. You know, there was never serious talk about actually nationalizing and and restructuring them, having the federal government take over and uh, actually run the company, or for that matter, have the syndicalist option, have it be a workers cooperative or whatever. Those were not the stakes at the time. They Mm -hmm. could have been the stakes, but this is 2000. If only Obama had been reading Tito. If only Obama had been a Yugoslav nationalist. If only you don't
0: really read Tito, you kind of just read what he did. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't he exactly was a, a theorist. He
1: was—he was a more of a practical thinker. <laughs> uh-huh. like, but a- his
0: his shtick was the you know unions are in control of the economy, yeah. and
1: like I think it was
0: you know on paper that was the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, not to relitigate Titoism, right? But like, let's do this- it. The 20th century is filled with all sorts of different models Mm -hmm. that we can imagine. That wasn't done. And in fact, what Obama and Congress forces down the throats of uh, the big three and of course the UAW is a massive restructuring of the auto industry. On pretty much the same exact terms that the auto industry had existed on before. Don't forget too that leading up to the financial crisis, and I suspect this has something to do with the massive asset inflation from the Greenspan push uh, put when all of a sudden you know money was cheap and flying everywhere. Uh, the asset price bubble included uh, not just the great financial institutions and shadow banking, which we know all about, uh, and the big short or whatever, but also to oil. So you had a similar situation in 2008 to what we saw in the 1980s, which is that the price of oil goes up, price of gas goes up, and all of a sudden, you know, the American car builders are still stuck in SUV mode and nobody wants the fucking cars anymore. That was a big part of what happened in the 80s, too, is these foreign competitors not only were cheaper and relatively better quality, but they're also smaller, you know, and people wanted those compact cars after the oil embargoes. So that's part of like the longer term planning of capital at that point in time, long and short term planning of capital. But uh, the point is, is that the Obama administration forced a consolidation of that industry under the same terms, forced Chrysler to basically sell itself to a foreign outfit, um, forced uh, GM to cut down on all sorts of different lines, you know, like they had all different types of cars, and now you can only make like seven or eight of them because the government's coming in and consolidating that shit. And what did the workers face? Well, of course, what they faced was the imposition of, t- of a second tier for the first time, uh, the breakdown of cost of living allowance, which mm-hmm. was famously won in the 1950s, the Treaty of Detroit. The United Auto Workers forced um, inflation to be uh, the... Um, the effects of inflation to be borne by capital, right? Mm -hmm. So if inflation is 5%, you get a 5% raise on top of whatever it was. Which is being talked about so much these days in these strikes, and I just don't remember
0: that being part of the rhetoric before. Maybe it was, but it seems like that's well-known. This question of inflation, meaning a reduction in wages, of real wages, is... Uh, I don't know, I, f- I feel like in the 2000s that was sort of sophisticated, wonky discourse, yeah, but now Krugman it's just, shit. Yeah. That's just part of the de- basic demands.
1: Well, part of this great transition that we've been through over the last 15 years, or to say, like, what, what capped that transition of uh, regime of accumulation, if you want to call it, that we're still living in right now, from like neoliberalism into like post-neoliberalism, whatever it's going to end up shaking out to be, and none of us really know yet. What caps that off is an experience that people hadn't faced in 40, 50 years in this country, which was massive inflation over the last couple of few years. And a lot of the, the politics uh, and the policy and the media output and uh, the rhetoric of this time is dealing with that trauma. Let's just call it a trauma, you know, for American workers, where all of a sudden, you know, when you could, you know, imagine you're going to have relatively stable egg prices. All of a sudden, you know, you and me go down to the supermarket a couple of years ago and eggs are fucking ten dollars yeah. for a dozen. I know If you're vegan, your vegan eggs are probably fucking <laughs> $15, you know? The vegan eggs bacon. are getting sh- a little cheaper, actually. Well, that's
0: yeah. that's the... For, for, for a minute, they were the same price. Those are the powerful forces of yeah. agricultural
1: capital. <laughs> I'm a, not a social justice warrior, but I'm a just egg warrior. That's totally fair. Just egg war. Um, so, yeah, like uh, inflation and cola is like a huge thing. It looks like they're going to win that in this contract. Um, but in 2008... The crisis was born by the United Auto Workers, who took like historic, a historic fucking hit from this, and so it's taken 15 years now for that to work itself through the union, work itself through the auto industry, and the only reason we're not seeing a repeat of 2019, which was a short strike, uh, I think that the terms at that point was like the difference between the UAW wanted like a. Three or four percent raise, and uh, I think it was GM that they struck at that point. Wanted a two to three percent raise, <laughs> and now you're talking over the course of the contract. Uh, the UAW came out the gate at fucking forty percent. Wow, right? Which rhetorically worked great because that's what the CEOs have made over the subsequent period. Forty uh, percent increase in their pay. So the rise of a. Uh, um, the, the fall of the old regime within the UAW through its own corruption, through its own incompetence, through its own happy, very happy marriage with uh, the auto companies, the fall of that and the rise of um, uh, United Auto Workers for Democracy uh, and the basically forcing through of one person, one vote, leading to a much more militant and social democratic leadership brings us to where we are today. And so it's it's not just like the objective factors, too. It's also that as we've seen for like 18 months, two years or whatever, uh, the working class, uh, what's left of the organized working class in this country is in a fighting mood. We've seen strike authorization votes in the 90s, like across the board. uh, Is that not common? Was that not common? I think it was less common. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, support for unions is up at like 70% right, right now right. among the working class. That's got to be an increase. Huge increase. I think the, in 2008 was the, the nadir of it, the lowest point, and it was something like 30%. Wow. So you've seen like a massive upswing in support for unions. Um, you know, working class self-organization, broadly conceived. And so this is the sort of context in which all of this is happening. The other great context too is that these companies have made billions upon billions of dollars and the Biden administration has, through subsidies um, and tax write-offs and credits and all of this shit, uh, staked its political reputation on this green transition. And now workers in that particular industry can kind of ride that wave a little bit. Uh, there's a great article that came out just a couple hours ago in the Times about how it's not really working. They went down, the reporters went down and talked to workers on the picket line and most of the UAW workers are not pro Trump per se, but they're certainly not pro Biden. Mm. Um, they see the administration as feckless, and they're not sure that they've seen much positives considering how much inflation and high interest rates and cost of living and all of that uh, has hit them. So it's a very interesting, like, heady sort of brew that's going on right now. Maybe we can hear Trump's response. Let's to hear this. what Trump has to say, yeah.
2: Let's talk about the economy. And I want to start by talking about this big standoff between the auto workers and the big three auto manufacturers. Yeah. My question for you, Mr. President, whose side are you on in this? Great question. Uh, I'm on the side of uh, making our country great. Uh, the auto workers are not going to have any jobs when you come right down to it because if you take a look at what they're doing with electric cars, electric cars are going to be made in China. The auto workers are not going to have any. I'll tell you what the auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership and their leadership should endorse trump the reason is you got to have choice. Like in school, I want school choice. I also want choice for cars. If somebody wants gasoline, if somebody wants all electric, they can do whatever they want. But they're destroying the consumer <laughs> like and an they're issue. destroying yeah. the auto workers. The auto workers will not have any jobs, Kristen, because the all of these cars are going to be made in China. The electric cars automatically are going to be made in China. Uh, so let's talk about UAW you know, leadership. The president
1: as always with Trump behind his hyperbole and behind his like rambling and behind his fucking weird weirdness is he's uh, also swatting at a gnat during the interview. There's like a gnat in his face, but which Obama easily caught by the way. He did. Yeah. That's, that's the difference in those two political figures. But yeah, like, no, there's actually some truth to that. This is going to get us into like the sort of deeper political economy uh, of this, uh, which is that, um, you need something like estimates are something like 40% less labor to make an electrical vehicle. Uh, an electric vehicle doesn't have all the complicated engine parts, doesn't have mufflers, doesn't have, you know, all sort. I don't know, cars all that good because <laughs> I'm a city guy, but like vast parts of the production process are basically eliminated, which means an elimination of all the, uh, much of the tool and die making mm-hmm. work that happens. Because, you know, there's like 130 something thousand UAW workers uh, represented it in this current contract. Uh, there's a hundred and something thousand more who work for the tool and die companies, which are these subsidiaries like private companies that feed into the larger automaker, like custom designed uh, and fitted parts for engines those jobs, by and large, would go away. And what you have to replace these little custom jobs in small shops are these very large battery factories, which, as it turns out, and again, this is where Trump's kind of right about it, as it turns out, China is like way ahead of the United States Mm -hmm. in not just that technology, but the ability to produce these things, these batteries, for relatively cheap. And so when you look at uh, the new green jobs that Biden and company are pushing forward... Uh, they tend to be um, basically what's like partnerships, right? Partnerships between largely East Asian, let's say Korean, Japanese, and I think in one case Chinese companies who are basically like giving the license that of, of the... In, Intellectual property that they have, the production process and the mechanical engineering of these batteries to the American car companies so that they'll have a joint venture together. And what the <clears throat> the uh, big three are arguing is that because those are joint ventures and they're not part of the contract that they don't have to settle with the UAW on those things. Uh-huh. Like those are
0: separate. So the entire EV production process will be outside the contract? Is that not it? Not the
1: entire thing. I believe like the chassis and the body and the wheel. The window, assembly. The, but the actual like engine Uh, not the engine, but I guess like the battery component, which is a large part of like the cost of these things will be um, outside the purview of this particular contract, which the UAW of course hopes to get that. Uh, Unions hope to get those battery uh, contracts, but as of yet, I don't think they've broken through on any of them. So what Trump is alluding to is something very real, which is that China has a huge leg up on the United States and that as of right now, the battery production here uh, is, uh, Going to mean the end of UAW jobs mm-hmm. unless there's a breakthrough. So, like the larger context of this too, you have to you have to keep zooming out on this and then zooming back in because it's but a complicated what percentage story. of the jobs do you think? Forty percent. Okay, forty percent. Like even if the battery factories are all organized under the UAW or some other union, it still takes forty percent less wow. labor to make these things. You're talking about a job massacre. You're you're already talking about an industry that at its height. The UAW had 1.5 million members in 1979. Now it's down to 330,000. And part of that is that so much U.S. manufacturing has gone to foreign companies, which in exchange for being able to sell their cars in America with no tariffs, are forced to produce their cars in the United States. But of course, those are all runaway shops in places like Chattanooga, Alabama, Mississippi, right, to work states down south that the UAW has tried over and over to try to break their way into, but they haven't, you know, for political and social uh, reasons, right? So what? either which way you look at this, and this is why capital is so hyped about this entire thing, either which way you look at it, you're going to you know, be able to sell these cars with 40% less labor input into them. There was an interesting story that popped up a couple years ago, I guess, Almost two years ago, when the uh, Ukraine war started, which is that on top of all the other supply issues that car companies were having, uh, you also had um, the war impacting um, car production because it turns out these things called harnesses, which are these very complicated and complex uh, spools of wire, electrical wire, basically, um, that are different for each type of car, uh, were so labor intensive that they were being outsourced to Ukraine. By these car companies. So, this tendency to have these runaway shops is a real one, you know, running away all the way to fucking Ukraine. So, what I think this contract is trying to do, or what the UAW leadership is trying to do, is they see the dark future on the horizon, which is an end to their fucking enterprise, right? Or at least the UAW going from 330,000 members or whatever it is down to like 90,000 members, some legacy members, including like hundreds of thousands of retirees who are subsisting off of like the inputs that the still uh, declining amount of workers are actually putting into the entire thing. They see that and so... I think they're trying to have a huge um, media effect and like propulsive sort of subjective effect on the rest of the non-union auto industry in the United States. They want to show that they can get 25, 30% raise over the course of four years uh, to try to break their way into the non-union shops down south, which are largely like Toyota, Volkswagen, Honda, plants like that. And of course, too, the crown jewel would be to organize Tesla. Something they've had a hard time (laughs) doing so far. And of course, Elon Musk is virulently anti union, as we know. We should
0: do it just to make Elon Musk mad. Just
1: to piss him off. Imagine him bitching and moaning and crying on Twitter the day they sign those fucking union cards. It would be perfect. It'd be fucking, it'll be a beautiful sight to behold. You know, and so like a lot of, I, I think a lot of like the NLRB. Rulings uh, that are making it easier to organize are part of a concerted shift on like s- one side of the ruling class in order to stave off the political t- catastrophe that's coming down the pipe and the economic catastrophe let's be honest if all of a sudden you know two hundred thousand good union jobs in like swing states in the Midwest mm-hmm. just fucking disappear under their green transition right the one that they're subsidizing and pushing for with regulations so you know and then there's and I was thinking about this on the way over. I might, this might be a crackpot idea, but I'm not sure it is a crackpot idea. Do you remember a f- couple few years ago when um, all of a sudden COVID shut everything down and we didn't have ventilators and we didn't have masks? And it turns out we don't really make masks or ventilators in the United mm-hmm. States. There was also at the same time for a couple months, um, uh, in-person auto production had been shut down. Right, because of COVID protocols, and the union wanted to keep their workers from fucking dying on the line, like the, um, like the slaughterhouse workers and shit like that. There were uh, assembly lines that were retooled to make um, ventilators and all sorts of medical equipment. There were whole factories that were turned over towards making masks. Where does the productive capacity come for that? How can you, I don't know, and like the off chance that this Cold War that they're starting with China actually turns into a hot war, where do you find the productive capacity all of a sudden to produce armaments, to produce tanks, to produce... Planes mm-hmm. on a sufficient level to fight off China. Who's going to make our EV jets? Who's going to make our EV jets that'll go on autopilot and fly themselves? <laughs> there, there's currently a, an F-35 missing right now. I'm who's, sure it'll be found by the time this episode comes it out. It probably on will. It'll <laughs> be old news. But who did it during World War II? It was the fucking auto plants. Uh-huh. They transitioned them relatively quickly over into making military surplus. So I think that like the underlying thing and why the blob is on board with keeping the unions around and like the auto industry strong and domestic is it because they don't want to see, uh, what, what's happening in like ship production happen and things like tank production right mm. now, because, uh, of the failure of a green transition, 15, 20, 30 years ago, the Arctic is now becoming passable for fucking cargo ships. You still need, however, icebreakers, Russia, that, backwards, primitive place that we're always talking about is on the cusp of falling apart economically and, like, politically, you know, there's... uh there's coups happening and Putin's on his last legs, manages to have a couple dozen icebreakers. You know, they have the technology to make more. They can go and they can create the special steel on the tip of the hull to break the ice of the Arctic so that their oil tankers can fucking pass through the now you know relatively ice-free Arctic. There was an article today that basically pointed out that we can't do that. Wow. The United States does not have the productive capability or even the know-how. Mm. To make icebreakers, something that's going to be part of like a larger sort of geopolitical struggle about taking over the Arctic for capital and and for various different nation states. Uh, We just don't have the ability to do that anymore. And I think that that's where this starts to shade into the sort of more blobby geopolitical sort of thing. So Biden does need to run on abolishing ice. He does need to run on, I mean where the the humanity is in the process of abolishing (laughs) ice right now. You don't have to read um, Andreas Malm to know that, you know, but um, yeah, no. So, so like, there's a lot of ins and outs of this whole thing. And this is like the context in which I think the leadership of the UAW, I think that there is a real shift. People have gone out, um, you know, left communist friends of mine in in the ether on Twitter or whatever. People who I respect, Talking about how only striking three different plants um, as uh, as opposed to like every all hundred and something thousand workers striking at once is a way to like dampen working class solidarity and make sure that the rank and file doesn't get out of hand or whatever. I mean, this is not a strike in order to like build a more militant rank and file that the leadership of the UAW understands that this is about as militant as they want them to get. They want Mm -hmm. good social democratic leadership. They want a guy who's going to stand next to Bernie Sanders and talk about corporate greed. Somebody who's going to ask for shit that nobody would have asked for five, 10, 15, 20 years ago, maybe even fucking win some of it. Right. But like the reason why there, there's only 13,000 workers striking right now is because the, you're seeing the UAW, Uh, try some innovative uh, industrial action. They're striking the three most profitable plants that make the most popular cars. Uh, they know that unlike four years ago, that car inventory is like new car inventory is way down. You know, in fact, the automakers only have, I think, of the three plants that are struck, uh, inventory to last until like the end of October. So when the end of October comes, you literally won't see. Various different like vehicles that that Americans want to buy in the stores anymore because they'll all run out.
0: Cutthroat industry against their competitors in Korea and Japan.
1: Oh yeah, they so don't.
0: that you know the, the it's not like they won't have cars to sell. It's just the prices are
1: going to go up and they're going to there's going to be less demand. Yeah, that's true. People can buy uh, foreign, and so there's like the the yeah. amount of leverage that they have over. Um, the big three is is pretty high right now, and they 're using it which so do respect. you read
0: this technique of the limited and rolling strikes as a a, a good one as, or, or uh, you know because the a few critics World socialist website and others have seen this as evidence that they don 't really want to strike mm. um, and there's been some critiques uh, from workers that uh, having to go to work at all without a contract, yeah. as UAW workers are right now, it puts them in a very perilous situation because now the managers can ding them for tons of things, mm-hmm. make them more precarious, say, you know, well, uh, d- during this period you were late this amount of times or you, like, turned off the machine this amount of times. Yeah. Stuff that would be uh, under the contract, protected to some extent. Um, now they're
1: in; they're working in a more precarious situation. 100%. I don't disagree with that at all. I guess what I'm saying is that um, at least what we're seeing at this point in time is some innovative ways to make um, capital hurt. You know, and to do a thing that hasn't ever been done because normally...
0: But what I'm asking is is yeah.
1: do you think that is
0: the point and it has a good chance of working or do you see it as a technique to not strike in a serious oh, way? Oh, I
1: think that they're trying to defend their uh, $600 million strike fund for as long as uh-huh. they can and only having $13,000 That's what Jim worked. Kramer says too. I think he's a Trotskyist. He's correct. <laughs> I, I'm a Cramerist on this. I, I mean, I'm not maybe as cynical as some other people. Maybe I should be more cynical. I think that in every strike and in every union there's always an element of trying to control the rank and file for sure they don't want to see things pop off they don't want workers getting ideas greater than just like cost of living and wages they don't want them to get ideas about like I don't know what do we do with this means of production you know (laughs) like maybe we could do more or Uh, a less cynical read
0: is just we don't want them to uh, shoot themselves in the foot because we are the professionals let us handle the strategy that's right
1: And then, and if you're a communist, you understand, and I think to a certain extent, like union leaderships understand that, uh, the rank and file, especially when they're so fucking like turned up and like ready to fucking fight can start to do things that, uh, undermine their power. So I agree. I think that is true to an extent, but I think that, uh, or at least implicitly that's true. But I think more broadly you have uh, a leadership that's trying new things, wanting to send a message. And they've done this through the media, you know, because typically the, all the negotiation happened, glad-handing in like smoky rooms behind doors, you know, the leadership of the union. And we're talking mm-hmm. the real corrupt scumbags from the last few decades, even more corrupt than the ones in the decades before that would go into the room with like whatever one of the three it was that they choose to, chose to struck because it was like a pattern bargaining thing. So every four years, the UAW would pick the one that like made the best sense to it to strike against and then the other the other two would fall in line behind that what they're trying to do in this instance and from like a a business union perspective even from a social union perspective under the auspices of like shitty unions in the United States I understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing and I'm not sure that it's cynical I think I want to think that they're keeping their powder dry for when they can shut the entire right. fucking thing down and they've got enough strike funds to give all striking workers $500 a week, but not like indefinitely. They mm-hmm. can keep that running. For and like, $500 a week time. isn't very good no. either. Plus unemployment, like, I don't know, in Ohio, that's probably like, what, $350 a week. So, mm. you know, like there are, of course, very... Very real economic and financial realities to the strike, like it's really fun to sit on the sidelines and write in your Trotskyist paper or tweet about right, like right. unlimited general strike. Let's do it now. but like these are people with houses. These are people with mortgages. These are people with bills and stuff like that. And so, like outside of a rep-
0: speaking of workers, there's some construction work going <laughs> yeah. on in the hallway.
1: Maybe that's being picked up. Sorry about that. if so. <laughs> yeah, if that is the case, then apologies. but like, what do you want from, from this particular strike? You know, I know what I want. You know, I'd like to see a victory and I'd like to see, uh, like a, a, an economic victory in this case, and I'd like to see it proven that uh, militant leadership, even within the reformist unions that we have, can actually get the goods. Because fundamentally, and why I can't disagree with the Trotskyists and the left comms who talk about um, how this is a sellout to only have, be partially striking, you know, we believe we we also believe what the leadership knows, which is that things can get out of hand and that workers can start talking amongst one another on picket lines. When you have a national strike, you can have workers talking across shop about interesting things for the first time. And you can also, whereas like the hidden abode of production is normally and the workers therein are normally behind a big fucking uh chain link fence with razor wire on the top, all of a sudden during a mass strike the workers are out. People can talk to them. You know, they can get bad ideas from people like us. That's all (laughs) true. And that, and I think that that is like what we want to see out of this dynamic. What do we, what, what would I like to see come out of this? I'd like to see a win. Because I think then it does bode well for the ability of uh, this sclerotic, what has been a very sclerotic and corrupt union, very much in hand with, uh, you know, the left wing of capital for many, many decades, show that uh, a militancy uh, a higher sense of militancy and actions of militancy can actually do good, which would could potentially lead them to organize those unorganizable shops in the south, which could lead to like a mass union that as has been the case going back to the 1930s, really stood at the very center of like American working class life and American working class demands and American working class political consciousness. You don't have the Detroit Reven- Revolutionary Union of Machinists in the 1970s unless they had been organized in some way, shape, or form. Would we have rather the UAW in the 1960s and the 1970s been committed communists, you know, of calling for an unlimited general strike? and like all power to the proletariat, we sure would. But in the political reality of the United States, if you can get an industrial union uh, of 300-something thousand workers to start winning and growing, that only helps the ranks of all of us whose politics ultimately have to revolve around the working class that is... And not the working class that we imagine or read about in our books or whatever.
0: Yeah, that and like I was saying before, they just deserve it. And I think yeah. the more the general attitude is like, okay, beyond our broader political visions or uh, you know game plan, people, it's good to recognize that the workers are making all of the money. The economy is the workers. Yeah, the workers know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, this is evidence, although perhaps very limited, too limited, that they can shut it down and they can sort of do with the economy what they will. Um, and just the recognition of that uh, in this like rolling basis, not in terms of just how they're operating the strike, but just how, like, we're seeing strike after strike after strike, and we're seeing some ramifications in that in terms of maybe inflation of auto prices, shittier TV, you know? Suddenly, we're just seeing Australian movies because (laughs) there's no new American movies. Yeah, yeah, just... it Reminding the people who makes things, and that's... Like, the the same thing with, like, a a sports strike. It's like, you always... No matter how little you sympathize with a ten million dollar contract or whatever, you got to be on the side of the people who
1: make the game interesting, which is the players, of course. Yeah, I mean, um, we, you, and I have been talking about since the beginning of COVID, uh, and uh, all of a sudden, everyone's talking about frontline workers and um, talking, and people are getting hazard pay for going into very dangerous. Uh, conditions, and then all of a sudden, all sorts of goods, all sorts of commodities that people just assumed like showed up on their door. All of a sudden, you had to recognize everybody, every consumer, no matter how like uh, completely blinkered their understanding of how the world works, all of a sudden realized that there were a series of steps that got that commodity to your door. You know, when you ordered it off Amazon, and that included trucking, that included manufacturing, that included Uh, raw material uh, uh, extraction, all of which was disrupted. And so all of a sudden it started to make commodities more like viewable, like understandable Mm -hmm. as like a social process instead of just a thing. Uh, And then, of course, what you're talking about more broadly is something that we've been missing, you know, except for like us last standing like trade unionists in this country. um, And even many of those too, is that it's repoliticizing work. You know, that's what the frontline workers thing did too, is it re work. It made labor, wage labor, like one of the fundamental political issues facing society. Of course, it's America, and this is like a petty bourgeois fucking shithole, and it's the center of a global empire. So of course, it, you know, a lot of that rhetoric ends up being really fucking stupid, uh, and a lot of it ends up being recuperated back into the two main political parties of capital that we have in this country. But I think we've seen that part of what this wave of strikes has has come from and part of what it's doing and certainly what the UAW strike is doing across the news, the right wing news and the soft left news, is it's showing that these questions of who deserves what, who makes what, uh, where do profits go, what is the state's role in all of this shit, what is the worker's role in production and in social life is becoming political again. And that is... I must say, as somebody who's been in this game for fucking over 20 years, that's not something you saw in the 1990s, except maybe as like a rear rear guard thing. Like if we if we do NAFTA, all of a sudden we're all going to lose our jobs. And then guess what? Those people lost their jobs. Those communities, by and large, disbanded. All sorts of civic associations sort of fell apart. The Mm -hmm. unions, which were the core of so many industrial cities in this country, just sort of dissolved into the ether. And work wasn't very particularly political. It was about grind set. It was about getting what you can get yeah, out of yeah. things. And so, this subjective aspect of this moment, and this I think is real, like a real capstone on this couple years worth of strike activity, uh, I think can only really be positive. And for the people who are upset the, that it's not doing what they want it to do in their revolutionary. Minds or whatever, yeah. Just wait a little bit, and also like, don't sit from the sidelines and be like, "Oh, look at those workers; they're being nice to cops. They don't see them as their class enemy. We need to do better." It's like, no, like we need to be out there and we need to have organic connections to the working class because none of us are in this fucking fight. Imagine in four years. Imagine to yourself at home, and we can do it here, the two of us, me and Andy. Imagine what it would take for you personally, but more importantly for us collectively as people on the radical left, to actually have an, uh, have input and an impact in four years when the next contract negotiation comes around. Maybe there's another big strike again. How are we going to be prepared to insert ourselves into that in a meaningful way and one that's going to resonate with people who, guess what, are still going to be fucking pissed off about their lot in life. They're still going to be pissed off at, uh, if it's not inflation, it's going to be something else tied to the economy, how do we involve ourselves? That's what we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about the medium and the long term in this battle. And how do we make these connections? And how do we make ourselves and our political vision attractive to an American worker?
0: But do you think that we need an International Workers' Alliance of Rank and File Committee's IWA-RFC? Yes, absolutely. All right.
1: Well, then you agree with the, (laughs) the platform of the Socialist Equality Party, I do. And let's take that to the bonus then, right? Because it's about bonus time. And I will say the other thing that people should start looking at at is the international dimension. And I'm not just talking about um, geopolitical, like China, East Asia versus the United States and like European ruling class versus American ruling class or whatever. Uh, I'm talking about it in terms of what we've been hammering on for a long time now, since it popped up a year or so ago, which is like the independent militant, uh, autonomous uh, auto workers movement that's happening in Mexico right, right. now. And also. And the what, attempts to pit those movements against one another. Right, because there's this whole nationalist dimension to this from both Trump and Biden, yep. right? From both section, sections of the ruling class. Remember, too, that when that fucking truckers convoy filled with independent truckers who were pissed off that their civil liberties were being taken away for better or for worse from COVID uh, when these petty bourgeois scum went up to fucking Toronto or Ottawa or whatever and were blockading the capital. They also blockaded the bridges because they knew that auto manufacturing in the United States happens in Canada, mm-hmm. and that's connected to what happens in the United States, which is ha- connected to what happens in Mexico. They're blocking the flows. They're blocking the flows of commodities, of unfinished goods that were going to go to different you know, car producers across that border. Hundreds of millions of dollars every fucking week worth of auto parts going back and forth. And they knew enough to block those because they saw that as a, as a, as a pressure point for capital on the state. Well, we should think about that too. And we should start imagining maybe in four years when the next contract is up, how do we take it upon ourselves to start looking at this as a, in a more internationalist way, not like an abstract thing, like putting your fucking flags, flag emojis in your Twitter Uh bio or whatever, but like start literally thinking about how do we start forging connections between the militant workers we know exist Outside Detroit, in Ohio, Kokomo, Indiana, where Sean uh, Fain comes from, also in Canada, and as we know, also in Mexico, too. If the UAW isn't going to do it, and they may have a part to play in that, we have to start doing. We have to start thinking about ways to make that fucking real and make a movement out of that, Because if it stays in one town, if it stays in one state, if it stays in one nation. As we know, it'll always be recuperated back. It'll simply become what it is now in the political sphere, which is a fucking ball that Brandon and fucking and Drumpf are just batting back and forth, and all of us sit on the sidelines and make our little comments and go home.
0: In four years, we will have emojis for the international
1: uh, rank-and-file committees. <laughs> they will all have flags, and we can put those in our profiles instead. If God wills it. We'll see you in the bonus section. Patreon.com slash TheAntifada. Everybody know, everybody knows
0: A little place like Kokomo Now if you wanna go to get away from it all
2: Go down to Coborba, Jamaica, Ooh, I I wanna take you to Bermuda, Bahama, come on pretty
1: mama.